Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got Maurice Liu. Maurice is the head of product and analytics at Teacher Union Health Fund. TUH is a private health insurer where they now protect the health of Australian from various industry, which includes the teachers, one of the very, very most important profession for our children. TUH is non for profit organization and is 100% owned by its member. Maurice and I start the interview and the conversation about consumer product design and how design play a role for him when it comes to designing the insurance product for private health insurer to make sure there is enough context and breakdown knowledge about the private health insurer in Australia. For our listener around the world, I asked Maurice in great details about the role the system, and the nature of the business for private health insurers in Australia. With all of these contexts are now said, we went on to discuss how data and analytics are used in the private health insurance. We covered the topics such as the product design, using the kennel analysis to understand what are the features that they should include or be excluded in the insurance product that they are selling? Equally, understanding how fraud and leakage reduction are occurring with the use of data and analytics. I asked Morris to further explaining about the leakage reduction in greater details and how they use a feedback loop to channel back all of this understanding about the fraud and the leakage reduction back to the product design. This is to ensure that they are designing and providing a product that is truly desirable by their targeted consumer. Apart from that, we go into a great details talking a little bit more about the pricing competitor analysis, a community rating system, as well as the stress testing. Apart from the, all of those great knowledge that Maurice had just shared, this is where one of the really, the biggest takeaway in the area that you really want to listen to uh, what Maurice has got to say in terms of how they are using the data and analytics in the circumstances where a lot of time their hands are tied, where there are so much constraint because of the industry and the nature of the business, and finally, as well as the regulation that they are presented to. Morris used the analogy of uh, portfolio management, where you want to optimize your portfolio using the concept of the constraint optimization in order to manage your portfolio. 
if you are someone who is running an organization in one of those highly regulated environment where there is so much constraint placed on, on your organization, really this is the episode that you do not want to miss and you want to understand how you can still optimize your businesses using the data analytic under various, various of the constraint because it is entirely still possible to optimize while you are still under all of this constraint. If you have any question for me or Morris, make sure that you send us a voice message and please connect to Morris on LinkedIn. His details will be able to be found in the blog and also the social media posts. If you like more episodes of this, where I deconstruct how data and analytics are being used in various industries to create a modern organization, make sure you click the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. Whilst data is the new oil in the 21st century, your subscription is going to be the oil for us to continue with this analytic podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And thank you for listening. Hey, Maurice, welcome to the Analytic Show podcast. I'm super, super excited to have you here today. And uh, I think we're going to find a lot of interesting things about the private health insurance. So super excited to chat with you. Yeah, thanks very much, Jason. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here and uh, talk about the exciting world of private health insurance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, there's a lot of uh, exciting things to talk about yep. uh, private health insurance. I mean, insurer is really one of the earliest of the data scientists in the world before before data scientists even become a sexy profession in the world, right? So <laughs> I think that would be super excited. Now, I want to start at this a little bit light and uh, talk a bit about your background. My research so that you study industrial design with a focus on consumer product design at the University of New South Wales is really different from the, a lot of the people that I come across. So I'm curious to know what led to your career change from these into analytic and financial services. Okay, so that, that's an, a lot of people ask you what happened or why I started in product design and then switched to finance. But it, it was a combined degree to start off with. So I sort of had an interest in how companies work and finance in general, but it just happened to be that I also was deeply interested in product design. So UNSW provided a very good combination of having that undergraduate in product design and then a postgraduate in commerce, which was very, very flexible. So the, the UNSW Masters of Commerce program is super flexible. You can specialize in many different things. So I chose more quantitative finance route. Aside from that, like in the end, most of the job opportunities came out from financial services. As most people would know, Australia's manufacturing industry is, is pretty small. And over the last sort of 20 years, it's probably gotten even smaller. So therefore, the, the number of product design jobs is probably dwindling. I'm also going overseas. So I really wanted to stay, stay in Australia. So yeah, went down the, the financial services route, which yeah, still interested me. Fascinating. And I imagine it would have a profound impact on your 
current role when designing the insurance product, well, it's not a really a physical thing, but I think that design thinking would still be in there, especially in uh, providing the analytical insight. If I were going to ask there's one thing or one concept that you learned from these industrial design where you were heavily influenced by it and you're still applying in your day-to-day works today, what would that one concept be? Yeah, so little did I know when I took up product design that the concept within it can be used in a wide variety of circumstances. So even when we're designing financial products or insurance products, the concepts of product design are still very valid. So the one thing that I would probably use on a relatively regular basis would be to have the sort of design thinking methodology as a core part of the way that I work. So consumer-focused design methods, so putting the consumer at the centre of how you design your products, focusing in on consumer problems more than anything. So design thinking is very much problem-focused. What is a problem that you're trying to solve for? If there's no problem, then why are you doing what you're doing, really? And how are you helping people in the end? It surprisingly comes up quite often. These product design methodologies overlap quite a lot in the finance product area. One thing that I probably would say is interesting is that you were already heavily involved or study about that before this whole human-centered design (laughs) become a thing. (laughs) Do you find a major difference of what you did and learned in that? period of time versus to this human-centered design concept that is so popular in the corporate this day? I think what I learned 20 years ago or something like that ridiculous is still quite similar. I think they've simplified it a bit in the corporate corporate world. The main steps when I learned them were you get a design brief, which is essentially narrowing down what your what your scope is, what the problem is that you're trying to solve for. And then you do conceptualization, which is very quickly generating ideas to try and solve that problem. And then development, so narrowing down the number of ideas that you're going to focus on and try to develop a bit more. So that might be about three. And then really getting feedback on that, those developed concepts and seeing where they might actually work or not work. And then doing that sort of feedback loop and just testing out whether or not it actually solves a problem in the end. And the human-centered design methodologies do sort of go down that route, but I think it's maybe more tailored towards the corporate sector a bit more through, you know, the, what's it called, like the, like the post-it note sort of methodologies that they use. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Now, let's move into a little bit about your current role. Would you please share with us and your role as a head of product and uh, analytic at the teacher union health fund and what are your key responsibilities in this role? Yeah, so my role is pretty broad at the moment. It's a fairly small company. There's only about 160 employees, a lot of which are employed in the, the health services unit, which is providing dental and optical services. The company itself is not huge, so the span of my work is quite broad. What it covers is product design, as as I mentioned, that's insurance products, health insurance products, pricing of those products, 
commercial analysis, which involves scenario planning, strategic planning, distribution channel analysis, stress testing and risk management, which is a big part in our capital management and broad-based analytics like fraud and health-related analysis, yeah. That in this is really broad, and we are going to go into the detail in some of those later on. But uh, in the meantime, I think most people in Australia, they maybe they are probably only familiar with the big two of these the health insurer. Can you please introduce PUH? I believe there's a short, short name of that to our listener who may not be familiar with the organization. Yeah, sure. So TUH is a sort of small to mid-sized not-for-profit health fund. A lot of the health insurers out in the industry are not-for-profit. The two bigger well-known ones are, are for-profit, so Medibank and Bupa, as well as NIB is also for-profit. But there's a lot of not-for-profit ones, so like HCF is probably the most well-known one. But TUH is not-for-profit. It's Queensland-based, so 90% of our members are in Queensland. And we originated from the Queensland Teachers Union. So we're, we're quite closely affiliated with the Queensland Teachers Union. And we have about 80,000 lives insured. And we cover things from hospital, medical, and also general treatment services, which includes things like dental, optical, physio, stuff like that. Yeah. 80,000, I think, is not a small number. I think that probably put you guys into the one of the top 10 provider already. Would, would that be correct? I think we're in the middle, middle of the field. There's quite a few. Like It depends on how, how you measure a fund because you could go by lives or policies because you can have a number more people on a, on a policy or you could go by sort of contributions or claims paid and services offered. We're pretty much right in the middle in terms of scale for most of those metrics. In Queensland, we're a bit bigger because that's where most of our members are. Wonderful. I want to set up the background so that the listener, when we later on move into the details of how these analytics are applied, I think it sort of like set up the tone and understanding of that. So I'm just going to ask two more questions just about the private health insurance. Then we can move into the, the more of the analytic in this private health insurance. So my next question for you is PUH is 100% owned by a member. I think you're saying that it's non-profit, is no shareholder. Do you mind to share for the people who are not familiar this sort of concept? What does this mean and uh, how does it work then? So we're a, like a mutually owned company. So a lot of credit unions and things like building societies are similar in, in the way that they're set up. We say that we're 100% owned by members. So that sort of means that if we were to get overtaken by a for-profit company that's listed or whatever, or privately owned, then our members would need to be paid out the, the equity that they hold within the company. So I think it's similar to the most well-known credit union in Australia, at least, is Credit Union Australia, CUA. They would be similar. There's also things like Newcastle Permanent, which is a big building society. And they're all sort of structured similarly in that the, their members will own an equity. Given that is the case, when it comes to the pricing and the pricing analytic, would that impact the consideration 
that you would have to put into the pricing then. I mean, apart from the regulation perspective, but what about this mutual, the nature of the company itself? Would that impact your pricing consideration? Yeah, so I, I think most, if not all, of the mutually owned health insurers are not-for-profit. So that means we, we sort of have to price with an aim for like a, a net margin close to zero. It's a pretty fine balancing act because we have to go close to zero but not go negative sort of thing because we're trying to give as much back as possible to our members through lower premiums but we also have to satisfy our prudential regulator APRA to ensure that we're um, prudentially sound and writing profitable business still. That's amazing. Now we have about 30% of the listener from US without getting into too much of the politics. Would you please explain the difference between the US and Australia system in the private health insurance? Yeah, so it's quite a complex system. Well, most most company, countries' health systems are quite quite complicated. I'll try to explain the two main points which I think are, are relevant. The Australian health system works in conjunction with our universal healthcare program called Medicare, which is funded by the government. And the government also subsidizes health insurance for a means-tested rebate. So that means that if you are of a certain age and income, then you'll also get a discount on your private health insurance. There's also things like the Medicare levy surcharge which adds on to your tax pretty much if you don't have health insurance and you earn over a certain amount. So there's incentives to take up health insurance within Australia through the tax system as well as through a rebate system. The second point is the Australian health system is community rated. So that means no matter what health condition you're in, so you could be very unwell compared to somebody who's very like healthy, you would pay the same amount. So it's not risk-based pricing as such. I don't think the US system is like that. I'm not that familiar with the US system, but I, I think Australia's community-rated system is taken up by some European countries and I think South Africa too, but I'm pretty sure we're in a minority. That means that we have to rely on something called risk equalization. So that means a transfer of risk between health insurers and between people to balance risks out so that we provide an equitable coverage, really. So no matter if you're really sick or so sick, then you'll be paying the same amount if you buy the same product. Fascinating. So, I think that brings up a question that I have is that would you then have to access to some of the data that may make available by the Medicare. I suppose the reason why I have that question is because if we were to look at the market size of the POH in the market, is it has a certain percentage. At the same time, in order to be sure to have a stabilized system because of the nature of the system of the private health insurance and the health insurance in Australia, I fear that we using your own data you may not necessarily be able to have the, the bigger picture of the entire population and to be sure that it is not exactly drifting away too much from how the system is built up and preserved. Do you think having access, or do you guys have access to that Medicare data at a certain level to help you 
with your pricing to help you with your capital reserving, et cetera. Something that's quite unique about the, the way that fund, uh, health insurance works in Australia is data transparency. So we can see on a quarterly basis all our competitors' demographic profile, like, I guess in terms of age and gender or who they're covering, as well as their claims, volumes. We can also see at a fairly, fairly consistent level that's regulated by the PHR, oh, the Commonwealth Ombudsman, all the products in the market too. So we have to load up all the information about our products onto to the Commonwealth Ombudsman. So we can see exactly what all the products are out on the market and what they cover for what price. So therefore we can, something about the, the community rating system that I mentioned earlier is it increases the risk of adverse selection. You'd know from general insurance also that adverse selection is when you price too low relative to peers and then you get targeted by people wanting to claim. If you price too low for something like pregnancy or something like that, you'll attract a lot of claims because everyone's priced the same. Everyone on that product will be priced the same. So if you're different to the market too much, you'll get picked out. And you can see from, with that transparency of demographics also in claims, you can see whether or not your claims levels per person are higher or lower than, than your, your peer companies or peer funds that you're comparing against. I want to develop this a little bit deeper if that's okay with you. Well, the data transparency is good. At the same time, isn't that the other side of the sword of anti-competition to a certain extent? So what is the balancing act that you guys, other private health insurer, would have to take that in walking that fine line? It is hard because it's hard to hide, I guess, anything. But like there are things that we will have in terms of infrastructure and uh, things like analysis that we do that goes deeper than the, the publicly available information and how we manage the each individual member really does matter in the end. So we'll, we'll talk about it, I guess, a bit later in the book with some of the other questions. But I think that's the reason why a lot of health funds at the moment are, are integrating more vertically to an extent, some are going horizontally too. So you'll see Medibank is very much integrating vertically through buying hospitals and things like that and sort of managed care providers, whereas NIB is integrating horizontally through things like the Qantas insurance products and things like that. Wow, that's fascinating. Shall we, apart from those using the data to build that community risk, share with us how data and analytics are used in private health insurance? So for TUH at least, data is used quite heavily in, in our product design. Well, we use it quite a lot throughout the business, but because I'm, I'm sort of responsible for the product area, I know it very well. <laughs> um, That's okay. the, the way that we design products is, is largely through not only claims analysis and what each demographic is sort of claiming for, but also things like consumer feedback, and things like Kano analysis. Kano analysis is, is product feature design theory that, that sort of picks out features and anti-features, really. So the idea is that people will pay, people will be more satisfied if their product doesn't have something 
as opposed to just getting more and more features on top. But like the prime example is pregnancy, right? So if you're a single male, you're not going to need pregnancy. If you're a, a couple about to retire, you're, you're not going to need pregnancy. So, so those demographic groups more than likely select that as an anti-feature and something that they wouldn't want on their, their health insurance. They'd be more satisfied if they weren't covering other people for those services. Whereas for somebody who's 65, having a hip replacement might, might be much more of a feature. So just understanding uh, each of the, the customer groups needs and wants uh, and what they don't want is quite important. On a product pricing perspective, competitor analysis is very important. So having visibility of all the products on the market, every state, every health insurer, every type of coverage is very, very important. And also margin-based margin, margin -based pricing. So obviously our claim, claims make a big difference. And fraud, so fraud is an issue amongst most insurance methods and do have a lot of input into the, the fraud, fraud analysis. Sales and retention analysis, so propensity modeling and things like that for retention and their channel analysis also targeting the right segments, propensity to join, stuff like that, yeah, through different channels, yeah, yeah. When it comes to the product design, because the nature of your business is originated, which is that uh, the teacher's union, I suppose that is certain bias in the data because there are certain population bias in that initial base of the member. My question for you then is, how do you overcome that bias that is originated your member base to make sure that you don't necessarily underprice or overprice or design the, not the right product for that then? Well, I guess there's a lot of different types of members, I guess, because we've got, we're open to form, former union members or family members of, of the, the teachers also. Um, and also a lot of our members are retired teachers. So it is quite broad, um, and yes, there will be biases, but I think in general our demographics are not too too different to yeah sort of the, the normal working population. Like there there will be linkages between the teaching community and, and TUH's pricing methodology. So we know at least from the public sector what things like pay increases and stuff like that will look like for teachers. We try to take that into consideration when, when pricing or, or, or not changing prices. For example, in 2020, we were one of only two health funds. So there's about 37 health funds in Australia. We were one of only two health funds not to change prices. The other one was HBF over in Western Australia. But where we can help with improving affordability and part of that was because we knew that the, the teachers also didn't have their wages changed. You talk about this leakage reduction in the fraud area as part of the how analytic is used. Do you mind to elaborate on this particular topic in terms of the leakage reduction? What do you mean by that? Okay, so leakage comes about by a few different channels. So that can be fraud, it can be wastage, over-servicing, it could be errors, 
things like that. So if somebody has a, I don't know, a $400 physio appointment, that's obviously going to be an error usually, right? But sometimes we have to investigate those sort of outliers because sometimes specialist physios may actually charge that much for a very specific type of issue. So the fraud and leakage are sort of, they're all bundled together just to understand the outliers that occur when, when claims come through. Right, that makes sense. I presume that can become sort of like the feedback loop back to your product design and to, to some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we notice that a lot of providers are claiming through a certain service, which is not our intent, yep. then we can adjust products to, to prevent that happening. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Now, for my research, I understand that pricing is one of your key responsibility. So is that correct that in the private health insurance, the price ceiling and increment are actually regulated? So I suppose the follow-up question for that is then, should that be the case, then how important to still have analytic function in this such a controlled environment then? Yeah, so yes, it is. It is regulated. So every year uh, we have to submit a pricing submission to the, the Minister for Health, and that also bypasses or goes through APRA, uh, Prudential Regulator. But in the end, it's, it's the fund making the submission. So it's very rare that the Health Minister would, would reject a, a pricing submission unless it is completely unwarranted. Health costs in Australia are rising just due to the aging demographic of the country. It's, mm. it's happening globally. So prices need to change in order to keep up with that, that inflation, health inflation. So we, because we've got the two sort of avenues that that price exhibition goes through, APRA, all about prudential adequacy and capital adequacy, and then the health department, which is all about coverage and making sure that people can afford health insurance. They sort of juxtapose, I guess, against each other. It's a very fine line that we're walking in order to satisfy both, both of them, that we are not eating away at our own capital by pricing too low and also not making it unaffordable for the consumers. <laughs> it must be hard to, to do the work with your hand is tight. My, my next question for you is uh, you promote the idea of increasing the data literacy. Share with us your thoughts on this space and uh, perhaps some of the strategies that you employ to make this a success in your organization. Yeah, so we're on a data literacy journey at the moment. And like many organizations, I, I think improving the data literacy is a key objective of a lot of companies at the moment. I think the main thing for us is to, to increase the confidence of our staff to use information to their best ability and, and make their lives a bit easier to make, make good decisions. We are bringing on a lot of technology at the same time, new data, data warehouse and um, new reporting systems. So we need to have the staff on board in order to, for them to appreciate it sort of there's no point building a skyscraper and then nobody going into it 
do you have a way to to help the employees, especially those the non technical or perhaps the front line, to be also helping uh, improving the data so that you guys at the back office or at the corporate world at the head office will be able to make use better use of the data. Yeah, yeah. So we're lucky in a sense that we've got a small company, so we can talk quite openly with almost all the employees. We do use our internal Facebook quite proficiently. Now we do we do do have like a, a data channel on that that Facebook, which shares things like both the conceptual and technical learning streams, and we we try to do things in a sort of high frequency, high frequency, low impact method. So small things that don't take much effort to really absorb, and the concept of data quality is has been repeated multiple times. And I think they, they all know because their, their own managers use the data to measure their own performance. So if they see incorrect information coming through, the managers will, will automatically see it through their own reporting, which wouldn't make sense. Yeah, and it's not, it's not intended to be a sort of means for micromanagement or anything like that, but it's more about improving the performance of the company overall and improving decision-making at all levels, yeah. You mentioned about the use of the internal Facebook. I am purely guessing. It sounds like it's the uh, Facebook workplace. Is that correct? I actually never used yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get hit a lot by Facebook on the app. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That workplace, yeah, it's quite good. It's just like using Facebook, really. <laughs> yeah. So how yeah. does it look? Do you mind to share a little bit? about that because <laughs> i've never seen one before <laughs> oh yeah okay so you can set up groups okay um which include certain staff members that you may want to pick out to share certain topics with you've got a chat function so you can do quick chat stuff to each mm. other which also has video and, and voice calling also in there a bit like whatsapp it's got mobile functionality so it's quite good I haven't really used many other social media platforms for work outside of that, but um, I understand that Teams Teams is catching up there. Fascinating. I need to get my hands on that. Now, what would be the visible impact so far that you guys have observed that you guys can get out from these pervasive data literacy within the employees? I think there's an, an interest in data or like handling data in a sense, because I think... A lot of employees recognize the fact that data is becoming more important, especially in financial services. So I think there's a positive engagement to start off with and then feeding that information, feeding the, the data literacy through also improves that, that engagement within taking an interest in what it means to be data literate, really, and better understanding our customers. So a lot of our staff are customer facing and, and deal face to face, or sort of very, very directly with our customers. So, getting feedback from our customers, understanding what they're claiming for, understanding each each member's journey can be better understood through through data. So, I think that's that's something that they're they're liking also. And I think in the end, improved productivity is also a big plus because if you can minimize the amount of time that doing repetitive tasks, of course, it's going to be better. We've got a, an RPA program also, 
data feeds that that robot too. So the more that we can sort of point point data towards the right places, the more productive and happier the staff will be, I think. Now, I know you are a big advocate about creating the shared value. My question then is, would you say this concept of the data literacy helps the organization to use data to create more of the shared value? Can you give us maybe an example of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my understanding of, of shared value and the creation of shared value is based on this concept that Michael Porter developed back in 2011. And it sort of means creating social and business value simultaneously. It's kind of similar to CSR programs in most companies, but there's more explicit objectives to create business value. So an example of that in health insurance where with data literacy uh, improves social outcomes and also business outcomes is, is through managed healthcare. So that involves helping people with chronic conditions to improve their, their lifestyle or behavior in order to make themselves more healthy, essentially. So if they've got an underlying health condition like type 2 diabetes or, or something like that, having that data through a feedback loop towards in that process so understanding what the implications of changes in behavior have on health outcomes is, is very valuable. In the end, it's good for the insurer too because we're obviously not paying out as many claims and data literacy helps that. So data literacy for frontline staff like nurses who manage these programs is incredibly important to drive that shared value delivering on both improved health outcomes for our members as well as lower claims for the fund. Now, I typically will try to avoid talking about the pandemic and the COVID-19 as these days, but given that you are a private health insurer, I really have to get your view on this one. What were the major learning from the pandemic and dealing with the pandemic for you and the insurance industry as a whole? Yeah, so what we found was the importance of, like, I do, I do scenario and stress testing as yep. part of my role. And, you know, before this, the way that those programs were set out was this event occurs and then we take these management actions in order to resolve the, the problem. What we found was the social expectations that were born out of the, the COVID-19 pandemic had a high impact on the decision-making, the management decision-making process, which is not something that we necessarily expected in prior stress testing and scenario analysis events. So we may not have full control over what we do based on social expectations. So if we were try, were to try to repair our balance sheet in the midst of higher unemployment, I don't think that's going to work very well. That was one of the main things that we, we learned is that social expectations matter very much and we must meet those expectations in order to remain viable and credible as a company. And also communication it is incredibly important too. So the media at the moment plays a big part in, in people's perception of, of most industries and health insurance is no different. And a lot of media outlets were saying that, you know, 
health insurers were going to make huge profits from not having to pay claims over the pandemic and that we should give all that money back. But on the flip side, if you need to get a hip replacement, you're not just going to abandon that whole plan because of the pandemic. You're going to delay it. And by and large, most health conditions are like that. There are some things that you may not need to, like periodic dental appointments, regular sort of appointments that that occur all the time. But the majority, large majority of health services require a catch-up. And there's a communication perception piece there that is very important. I'm curious to know that um, given of the unpredictability of the event, because of how, depending how well they are controlling, does it mean you would have to run your stress testing so much more frequent than maybe before 2020, just to make sure that there's enough capital to cover should there any major event happen? Most of our stress tests are very extreme. So by and large, because not-for-profit organisations or unlisted organisations don't have access to additional capital should they need it through a listed insurer or an insurer with a parent company may have access to additional capital through reducing dividends by getting a capital injection from their parent. But a lot of funds don't have that. So our capital reserves are quite, quite wide in order to absorb shocks. I don't think that increasing the frequency would necessarily be necessary, mm-hmm. but I think adapting the programs to be more socially conscious about expectations would probably be needed. Adjusting the severity, I guess. Now, I suppose I want to conclude this interview by asking you one question. From the, throughout the conversation, to some extent, I feel like because of the nature of the business itself and the nature of the company itself, I feel like a lot of time you have to do your analytic in a condition where your hands are tied, you in a very controlled environment. And with most of the things that are really limited to your disposal, things like the pricing, things like the regulation, things like the mutual, you know, all this stuff. My question then for you is what would be your advice for the other company who are in the similar circumstances and how they should be approaching with their data analytic under these sort of circumstances then? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. And I think all companies will have some sort of restrictions around them through legal legal means. What I found quite relevant was treating things like a portfolio optimization problem. So in portfolio management, you've got traditional portfolio management where you're managing a fund, stocks and things like that. You can buy and sell, but sometimes the client may have a condition like you can't short sell, you can't buy into derivatives, all those types of conditions. So it's similar in, in terms of running this type of business also. So it's, a constrained optimization problem. Optimizing your desired out towards your desired outcome with the, the constraints that you've got. And you know, you have to really understand whether or not those constraints are real and whether there's constraints out there like those social expectations that you're not aware of or are quite 
uncertain about how to how to measure those. And that's where your, your scenario and stress testing might come in also. So from a quantitative standpoint, I, I would say treat it like a constrained portfolio optimization problem where the legal, social, and all the different constraints come into that problem at the same time. So with that in mind, in some of those factors could be, some of those constraint factors could be quantified using a number, a factor, whereas some of those constraints may not be necessarily be able to quantify. For example, the social expectation. How would you have to do your simulation, especially with your stress testing? Yeah, I guess you need to understand to what extent the responses would be from making changes and the range of possible outcomes could be. So I guess the social expectations would flow through to things like uh, terminations, your growth levels, your, your NPS ratings, your you know, member satisfaction ratings and things like that. So they can all sort of come into it at the same time. Whether there's ones that are more difficult, I wouldn't say that everything is quantifiable. <laughs> I would like to, but I would say that a lot of things could have a range, a range wrapped around it or a, a sort of a binary outcome set to it. So a yes or no sort of thing. That's amazing. Um, that <laughs> I feel like it's really challenging in that situation. That brings us almost to the end of this interview. And I have got two questions that I have got for you, like any other guests. Number one is, what is your most important first principle? Yeah, so when I, when I um, bring new starters on, into my team, I hand them this set of value cards, right? It has all these different values, like health and family and stuff like that. The one that I pick out as my number one is integrity. And that's number one. Without integrity in, in financial services, the whole system falls apart, really. It's all, it's all based on trust and doing the right thing because you can't really see a lot of the stuff that the consumer gets. Really. It's, so integrity is definitely the, the number one. I think that's a, a Warren Buffett integrity value also, yeah, that he values that one highly. I so agree with that. What is your one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? I would say Grey's Sports Almanac. <laughs> so if you've ever seen Back to the Future 2, that, that's the book Marty McFly picks up and he, he, he picks it up in the future and then goes back into the, the past and, you know, was able, you could, and I think Biff or whatever, stole it and made millions by betting on the sports outcomes. But, um, <laughs> but I think the, the Great Gatsby is a good one for me because I've worked in financial services for a long time. The sort of message that comes out of the Great Gatsby is that wealth is really meaningless without any integrity or social cause behind it. So there's no point having a whole lot of wealth if your your soul is empty, really. So I agree with that. Thank you so much, Maurice. That is uh, for sharing all of those uh, knowledge and uh, also especially the use of the analytic in the private health insurance. I think what is really great to come out to of this is that how to do analytic when you have got so much constraint in such a hand-tight environment. I think that is a lot to think about for many people as well in the similar situation. So uh, again, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is great.